Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Raby. This week, we talk with Dr. Sue Lieberman, Vice President for International Policy at the Wildlife Conservation Society. We'll talk with Sue about a major new report that synthesizes the literature on the global state of biodiversity. The report warns about a variety of risks, including species extinction, habitat degradation, food insecurity, and much more. Sue will help us understand the scale of some of these risks and share her views on how policymakers can respond to prevent them. Stay with us. Sue Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's really great to have you. My pleasure. So, Sue, we're going to talk about issues of biodiversity today and talk about a recent report in particular that talks about biodiversity challenges around the world. But before we get into detail on those issues, we always ask our guests how they got interested in environmental policy. And for you, uh, you know, how did you get interested in biodiversity in particular? Uh, Well, I was always interested in biology, ecology, animals, but was never interested in staying indoors in a lab. I did my PhD on reptiles and amphibians in Costa Rica, and I did a postdoc on tortoises in Mexico. And then after my postdoc, I got a job in Washington working on endangered species and policy, and I was hooked. And I really enjoy trying to influence, get governments to do what they're supposed to do, basically. Right. Right. And so I imagine you're inside most of the time, though. Now, do you miss uh, being out in the field? I get in the field whenever I can. Fortunately, I work for the Wildlife Conservation Society. There's a lot of field work. So I, I try to get out as much as I can. I try to make sure there's enough left out there for everyone else to work on as well. Right. Right. Wonderful. Okay, great. So as I mentioned early on, um, we're going to you know talk about biodiversity. So uh, one helpful thing for our audience and for me, uh, who doesn't have much of a background on this topic, it'd be really helpful if you could kind of define that term biodiversity and how we're going to talk about it today. And also just give us a really broad sense about you know why and how biodiversity is important for humanity. Sure. I mean, biodiversity sounds complicated. It's just a short version of biological diversity. It means the variety of life on Earth. It means all the species on Earth and their habitats, where they live, whether it's forests or the ocean or coral reefs or grasslands or deserts. It's everything. It's the variability of life on, on planet Earth, including the, the oceans and the land. Mm-hmm. And, and you can get more complicated than that and talk about habitats and talk about ecosystems, etc. It's everything. If you go into a forest, it's the animals that are there, it's the trees, it's the soil, it's the whole functioning of the ecosystem. It's critical. It's critical to life on Earth, and it's critical to our life as as humans, as as human beings. We're dependent on nature as much as we think we aren't. We are. Yeah, and so can you elaborate on that a, a little bit? Maybe just give us a couple examples of um, you know where these relationships come into play and how they're most important. I imagine we can all think of some examples, but but what are some that come to your mind? I mean, what comes to mind, if you think of all the oxygen on Earth, it comes from, you know, photosynthesis by plants. All the oxygen comes from the ocean. The water that we need for for agriculture and for life to stay alive, the water comes from the water cycle, which comes from the ocean. There has to be functioning ecosystems on Earth for, for, for human life. Now, if 
humans disappeared tomorrow, the planet would be fine. But we need a healthy planet for for clean air, for clean water, for agriculture, for fisheries, for everything. But even if we don't need it, there also is intrinsic value to to wild species, to wildlife, to wild places, to wilderness, etc. It's 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 our planet. I, I, there's no other way to put that. And you can yeah. get technical and talk about food security. People need need land to grow crops, and land is used could be used in far more sustainable ways. But we need the ocean for fisheries because people use animal protein in large amounts to survive. Right. Yeah, and you know, there's there's all sorts of work in economics on trying to value some of these. Um, some of these issues, you know, ecosystem services is the the obvious one, but there's, you know, existence values and, and things like that that are maybe harder to quantify, but we certainly know that they are important. Um, so, you know, one thing uh, that I, that strikes me about biodiversity and the co press coverage of this topic is that, you know, there's often a lot of attention paid to iconic species, right? Sometimes called charismatic megafauna, which is probably my favorite term in the <laughs> environmental world. Um, so we think about like polar bears or elephants or tigers, you know, amazing, wonderful animals. Um, but, you know, but they attract a lot of attention. Uh, but aside from those um, sort of charismatic animals, in general, my sense is that biodiversity and topics around biodiversity don't always get as much attention as other environmental issues like maybe climate change. Uh, of course, the two are interrelated, but um, but do you have any sense, uh, well, do you agree with that characterization? And do you have any sense of why um, it might be so? Well, for one thing, climate change is, is more tangible to people. They see the, the temperatures changing, they see the variability, they see storms, sea level rise, etc. So that becomes tangible and they're aware something's changing. Uh, they don't tend to see species extinctions. You look right. at the ocean, it looks vast, it looks endless, and they don't realize that probably 90% of all the fish in the ocean are overfished. So I, it's those that are used by people. So I think also people people understand species. They think, well, polar bears or elephants or tigers or parrots. These are things I can, I can see, but they don't really see that they're that they're declining or they're disappearing. When something's gone, you don't notice that it that it has disappeared. But I think it's also some we need to get to what people can relate to. People understand species. They understand natural habitats. They know when they go to a to a national park that looks and functions differently than their city. So I think it's also a matter of explaining this to people in ways in ways they can they can relate to. The term biodiversity sounds very technical and wonky. It's not technical and wonky. It's just the species and where they live and how they function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess I wonder if. Um... You know, urbanization of people, increased urbanization is related to that uh, lack of understanding. Do you do you think that's the case or is that something you worry about? Yeah, I think I worry about it. And I think it's both good and bad. I think mm -hmm. it's it's a factor because people go to the supermarket and they buy food. People who live in a rural environment understand where their food comes and understand their relationship with nature. People who are, who are local communities or indigenous communities who are living directly dependent on healthy environments, often coastal communities or, or forest indigenous communities, they know all too well and they know all too well what's, what's being destroyed. But at the same time, Time, people in cities have a tremendous opportunity in terms of their consumption to make a difference on the natural world. So urbanization isn't necessarily bad. It's just something we have to deal with in ways we haven't really grappled with sufficiently. 
Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. So in early May, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which is a mouthful, uh, was called the IPBES. It, uh, my understanding of the organization is that it functions a little bit similarly to the IPCC on the on the climate end of things. Um, the report's certainly structured similar to the IPCC reports, but um, you know, please, please correct me if I'm mistaken about that. Um, so the IPBES released a summary of its latest assessment of global biodiversity, sort of bringing results together from a variety of areas of research. Uh, and the results received a lot of attention, sort of front page of the New York Times kind of thing. And um, the report covers tons of ground, so we absolutely won't be able to cover all of it today. But I'd like to touch on you know a, a few topics and hear from you first what you think are some of the most important findings uh, or messages that are coming out of the IPBES report. Sure. And yes, it is a horrible name and a horrible acronym. Um, <laughs> but basically, what's really, in a way, there's nothing new here, in that there isn't new science. This is pulling together existing science, information, scientific literature into one place. What's really interesting is these are, this is from governments. The gov governments and scientific experts are, are part of this platform, if you will. But this is endorsed by and produced by governments. And this is governments and scientists globally coming together and saying, we have a problem. And there are some really important findings. For example, I'm not going to list them all or we'll be here for three days. But the, the terrestrial environment, the land on Earth, three quarters of it has been severely altered by humans. That means we only have one fourth left. That one, one, one fourth that's left, a lot of it is incapable of being altered. The ocean has been altered. Intact, intact ecosystems, that sounds wonky. Places that are working, places that are intact and functioning the way they should with their species and all the relationships in the ecosystem, they're disappearing fast. Even the vast forests of the northern forests of Canada and, 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 and Russia, etc., uh, the tropical tropical forests of the Amazon, the Central Africa, et cetera, they're disappearing. And in terms of species, approximately a million species are in danger of extinction. Now, that's so many, you can't get your head around it. But basically, a third of, all of, of, of corals, sharks, marine mammals, they're all threatened with extinction. So this is, I think, I mean, the, the findings are significant. What's most significant, by pulling it all together, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for citizens, for, for people, and also for governments. Do they just say, well, gee, how sad, let's just keep business, doing business as usual, or are there some real solutions? But what's significant about it, and yes, it's a very long report. They've only released the summary of the latest assessment right. that the news is not good, but there are still places that we can conserve and protect and save. Yeah. And can you speak a little bit to to the reaction and reception of the report? I mean, I, I certainly noticed it because of the uh, large amount of press coverage that it received. But it, do you think it's having the type of impact and reception that you had hoped for or would hope for for a report of this type? Well, I hope so. It's getting a lot of press. But what often happens is there's a flash in the pan of a lot of press and then people move on to the next big thing. Yeah. So I think what's important is to Highlight this with key governments, if you will, and make sure that governments take decisions, 
policies, whether it's nationally or at international conventions or at the UN, and do something about it. If everyone just takes this and go, oh, how sad. Well, that great. We got a lot. Of, we got something in the New York Times. Oh, how sad. Let's move on and business as usual and keep over exploiting our planet as if it's limitless. Then it, then it won't make a difference. But hopefully people who really take this seriously will work to, to make a difference. I know there's going to be a hearing um, on Capitol Hill in the U.S. They're looking at it in Europe. They'll be looking at it at the U.N., at the Convention on Biological Diversity. So that's where it's important to, if you will, keep up the drumbeat. Keep citing it and keep pushing and saying, we can do something about this. Right, right. And certainly, you know, that that would be the role of, of, uh, of advocates and uh, organizations like yours uh, working on these topics. Absolutely. And that's what I meant by there's nothing new here. We know that. We've been working on this. But this way, everyone can pull together. And it's not just, well, it's not our opinion. We're science-based. But the point is, this is a global consensus now. We have a problem. It's a serious problem. What do we do about it? Right. Yeah, it reminds me of the sort of IPCC process and the relationship between IPCC reports and government action or lack thereof. Absolutely. Um, where we have these reports, they get a lot of attention. And, um, you know, in the climate space, certainly there there has been more action in the last 10, 15 years than we saw previously. But, um, you know, a lot of debate as to whether or not that action is sufficient or commensurate with the, the science uh, that's coming out of the, the literature. Well, it's we are in the midst of a climate emergency, but we're also in the midst of a biodiversity emergency. Mm-hmm. And we we have to say, we can't wait and say, well, Let's let's wait, give it a decade, 10, 20 years, and maybe we'll do something about it then. There's no choice. The action must be now. Right. Well, let's dig into uh, one topic in particular uh, that sort of piqued my interest. And again, we could go so many directions on this report. But um, but one of the areas that, that I found fascinating was the relationship between food security and biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one stat that... Um, stuck out at me, uh, according to the report, is, you know, 75% of global crop types rely on some type of animal pollinator. Uh, but as as has received, I think, a pretty good amount of press coverage, a lot of pollinator species are threatened. Uh, and according to the report, that puts between uh, about 235 and $600 billion worth of crops at risk each year. Uh, so that's big money. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about why pollinators are in decline and what might be done about it? In particular, what kind of you know agricultural practices or policy practices might make a difference on, on this topic? Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And pollinators, if people aren't aware, think of bees, think of birds. Having healthy bee populations globally are worth, as you say, hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, to, to agriculture. Um, why are these pollinators really declining and declining significantly? Uh, a lot of it is pesticides. A lot of it is, um, in the case of bird pollinators, it's hunting, but it's also habitat loss. If those pollinators, bees, etc., don't have habitat, their populations are going to decline. So it's when habitats are destroyed, it's not just that particular ecosystem that, that is destroyed. It's not that particular forest or that particular grassland, but it's the species that are there. And you mentioned iconic species earlier. It's not just the tigers or the elephants, it's the, it's the bees and, and beetles and other in other insects and that's one of the key reasons is that we're seeing these declines in pollinators a combination of habitat loss and and the and the tremendous global use uh, of pesticides uh, what can be done about it is agricultural practices need to change 
to ensure, and in, including the use the use of pesticides, including the use of more or organic crops, but also habitat loss, uh, tearing down of, of forests, etc., build infrastructure, building roads in in uh, intact forests. All that needs to change. Um, and governments need to look at not just short-term economic benefit, who's going to pay them to do something, but the long-term impact, including on pollinators. So I'm there, but basically it's about changing, changing agricultural practices from the sort of um, agribusiness approach to a more small-scale approach. Yeah. I guess so. So that sort of relates to the next question that I wanted to ask, which is about um, you know also about food security and biodiversity. So so one of the points highlighted in the IPBES report is that the diversity of the plants and animals being raised by farmers uh, has been declining. So just the the different the the number of types of plants and animals raised by farmers is becoming less diverse, and that can make them more vulnerable to things like diseases or pests. So what I'm wondering is, um, you know, not just you know could farmers uh, raise more diverse uh, crops and animals? Of course they could, right? Uh, but they're making economic decisions to uh, to pursue. Uh, the types of breeds that they're deciding on. So can you talk a little bit about the um, short-term versus long-term economic trade-off that individual farmers and also policymakers need to think about when they're thinking about um, you know, what uh, works economically today versus what is sustainable over the long-term? Well, a lot of the decisions that farmers are making are based on government subsidies, mm. are based on what governments say, we will pay you if you grow this. Right. They're based they're based on the market. So what needs to change is government subsidies and, and market factors. Some of that is people's choices in terms of what they're consuming. People do eat fewer, a smaller variety of vegetables, say, and fruits, particularly in the West than, say, in Asia, Asia or Africa, where people are used to greater, greater food diversity, greater crop diversity. But it's also a big issue, again, with government subsidies, and I have to say, livestock practices. So a tremendous amount of habitat loss is caused by the planting of soy, and the vast majority of soy that's planted is gone to livestock feed. So you, you have have this monoculture of soy across across the globe, really to feed livestock, not to feed people. So that is a decrease in crop diversity, but also it's not doing much for global food security if all that soy is going to feed cows and chickens. But also, basically, cattle production is very environmentally harmful compared to, say, chicken or, or other species. Same with uh, a lot of the fish that are fished, the small fish, for example, go for, they do not go for human consumption. They go into animal feed for animal consumption. That's incredibly inefficient. So I think we need to look at the whole global food system. I'm not saying everyone should be a vegetarian. It would be nice. It would save a tremendous amount of our planet. But people need to look at their choices, and governments need to look at what they are artificially propping up through through subsidies or price controls for, for farmers. Right. But it is com that's just uh, a subset of the solutions. But basically, it has to do a lot with these macro, these big economic factors and government subsidies. 
Right. And so on that um, meat consumption question, you know, we've been wanting to do an episode on, on meat consumption for a little mm-hmm. while, and I think we will sometime soon. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about that global trend of increased meat consumption? I mean, it's one of the things that I read about casually and, and get the sense that in general, as populations become wealthier, they tend to eat more and more meat. Um, and that, of course, you know, increases the intensity of farming practices that has to has to happen to supply uh, those livestock with, um, with those inputs. So like, do you see, uh, is, is there a sustainable farming future where people continue to eat more and more meat or, or are those things sort of inherently at odds? On one hand, I think it's inherently at odds. On the other hand, I think it depends on the source of animal protein. If the source mm-hmm. of animal pro- protein is cattle, it doesn't appear that there is a sustainable option for the future. And yes, the consumption of beef is increasing as a middle class, in, as people move into the middle class. Uh, consumption of animal proteins such as some fish, not necessarily wild fish, but fish lower on the food chain or fish produced in aquaculture is much less environment, not always but in many cases less environmentally harmful or chicken or other species that require or have a lighter footprint on the environment, say, than beef. So I think even looking at the whole issue of, of animal protein needs to look at in terms of which species and how they're produced, whether those livestock are, are grazing um, naturally or they're in, you know, in, t- in intensive agriculture where they're all eating, they're eating soy or, or there is some feeding of fish even to her, to uh, plant eating livestock in order to have them grow faster. So, I mean, this, this is a serious issue, but that's more, that's not so much food security as right. it is, you know, animal protein consumption and how to do it sustainably. We also need to look at the food security of coastal communities, poor people, the, 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 the rural poor across the globe who are not served well by some of these, these um, agriculture or fisheries practices. If you look at high seas fisheries, which are subsidized, they're, they're depleting fish stocks um, and fish that would have gone to feed coastal people. Yeah, so many fascinating issues to talk about with food. We're going to have to um, get your recommendations for for other people to talk to, or maybe have you back uh, to talk issue. more about that. It's a big issue. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so sticking, going back to uh, sort of our main focus of of biodiversity. Um, as I was reading the summary of the IPBS report, I was thinking to myself um, that some of the challenges outlined in the report uh, would be occurring uh, without climate change, and then some of them are exacerbated by climate change, and there's sort of a, a interesting mix of issues there. So looking forward, can you talk about any, um, or do you want to highlight an issue or two where climate change might exacerbate uh, or even maybe mitigate some of the challenges talked about in the report? Yeah, first of all, I think it is important not not to really separate the two. I mean, mm-hmm. how we mitigate climate change in terms of reducing carbon emissions is one thing. But if you look at the impacts of climate change or how to how to adapt to climate change, you sh- it's really hard to separate the two. And I think it's a mistake. A lot of people are looking now at the whole issue of how do healthy ecosystems um, deliver on adaptation to climate change or mitigate the, the, the negative impacts of climate change. There are certain ecosystems that are particularly resilient to climate change, such as intact forests. 
if you take intact boreal forest forests in Canada or intact tropical forests, they're much more resilient to climate change to, than than those that have been uh, seriously seriously already degraded by human activities such as logging and hunting, etc. We need to prioritize those. We need to look at how governments work together to retain to keep what we've got those intact forests and other ecosystems. We need to keep them. We need to not lose them because they provide the resilience that that our planet needs. So if we're looking, you know, we can look as well at at efforts to restore certain certain ecosystems. It's much cheaper to protect protect what we have than to destroy it and then wonder how do we restore that? How do we fix it? Because some mm -hmm. ecosystems can't be fixed. Climate change as well sort of managing for climate change needs to be part of how governments make decisions on where do they put parks in protected areas? How do they manage fisheries? Because the species are moving. And you may have a park to protect something now, but the species are going to move because of climate change. But also when you, when you hear a lot of talk about climate change, we need to have forests in order to um, to produce to, to take carbon out of, out of the atmosphere. Well, those right. intact forests, those places, if you think about you know the the trop, what the tropical forests of, of Central Africa, the Congo basin, that they're doing that now, and we need to make sure that they're protected for the long term. And I think to to deal with climate change, we need to protect the, the biodiversity, if you will, of those intact places on Earth. And as we look at the IPBES, the IPBES report, there aren't as many of those intact places left on Earth as we'd like there to be. Right. Yeah, those connections are fascinating. Um, so, and, you know, and again, we're, I know we're just scratching the surface on so many of these topics, but hopefully it piques people's interest and they can, they can dive deeper. Um, so last question before we go to our final top of the stack segment, um, is a policy question. So you've alluded to a few, um, uh, policy measures that policymakers could take to mitigate some of these risks, you know, agricultural subsidies, um, other issues. Can you talk about um, maybe one or two more policy measures that you see as particularly important for, you know, balancing that uh, need to uh, sustain economic development in many parts of the world, but also promote long-term sustainability? Yeah. On the one hand, it's not really about better balance between short-term and long-term. I think mm -hmm. governments need to look long-term, period. Mm -hmm. And I know most many governments that are democracies look at, just look at the next election cycle, right? They're not thinking 10 years, 20 years down the line. They're thinking, you know, what's happening in no, next November. But I think there needs to be a policy effort uh, globally, governments working together to look at the long term, to look at the benefits to wider society and less to those economic benefits from special interests. That's very easy to say and very hard to do. I recognize that. So we need to work with governments on strengthening their legislation. So if someone comes into a government and offers them so many billions of dollars or millions of dollars to build roads and dams, etc., governments have legislation that say, wait, we need to look at the environmental impact of that, not just economically is someone going to benefit. Uh, we need to, governments need to improve their abilities at enforcement and accountability of their own laws and, and rules. But I think from a policy perspective, there are 194 governments in the world. We could work with each one individually or work globally. And that's where 
uh, next year, the Convention on Biological Diversity is going to come up with its new targets and commitments by governments for the next decade. And, and I, we think that's the place where governments can take this information and agree we're going to do better. We're going to do A, B, and C, and we're going to make a commitment to stop harmful subsidies. We're going to make a commitment to to protect intact ecosystems, period, forests, coral reefs, etc. So I think the policy steps have to be at the national level, particularly with those countries uh, causing the most environmental harm, as well as at the at the global level through treaties and through the and through the UN. And it may seem like, well, you get a treaty to agree to something. What good is that? But if a treaty ag agrees to something, then you can hold government's feet to the fire. Hey, you agreed to that. And for, for poor countries, then the funders, the donors, the foundations, etc., will fund some of the things they've committed to. So those are just some, some policy options. But another important option is not necessarily the government's making decisions, but the public, if they live, people live in a democracy, they can vote for people who will, who will take action for the long term environmental sustainability. Right. Yeah. So let's definitely put a pin in that and, and circle back, you know, in a year's time after that conference to sort of get an update on, um, sure. on where those policy measures stand. That would be fascinating. Um, so again, as I, as I said, you know, we're only scratching the surface on this stuff, but, I, but I encourage people to check out the IPBES report or at least some of the, some of the media coverage on it. There's, you know, an, an enormous amount of information in there. Um, and, you know, much of it, uh, doesn't always rise to the surface, uh, of press coverage. So, um, so yeah, check it out. And, and now we'll go to our last segment, which we call top of the stack. So what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? And I will, uh, start us off by, um, just mentioning a book that I'm a about halfway through, which is related to the topic at hand. Uh, the book is called The Uninhabitable Earth. It's by David Wallace Wells. It's a book about the projected impacts of climate change, including effects on species and habitats. And And I have to say, the book is utterly terrifying. Um, and it, it's intentionally terrifying. And uh, in, what's interesting to me is that the the book sort of takes some of the scariest parts of climate change and unfortunately in my opinion presents them as if they are facts or inevitable somehow um it sort of uh, ignores the agency that we have about uh, mitigating the risks of climate change and taking action to prevent the worst impacts of climate change uh and so i think the book is Informative in some ways, but, uh, but it really paints a bleaker picture than I, I think is necessary. And so it's unfortunate, uh, in that respect. But I know a lot of uh, other people will be reading this book and having their own opinions, but that's sort of my really quick take on it, uh, after getting about halfway through it. Um, so, uh, so Sue Lieberman, how about you? What are you reading lately or what's on the top of your stack? Uh, yeah, I have a bunch of international meetings coming up, so I wish I could say I'm doing more reading than I am. But one thing <laughs> I think I, I've really enjoyed this new Our Planet uh, series on Netflix. No, I don't work for Netflix. The new David Attenborough. Um, I love these nature shows. I always have, but you, I always yell at the screen because it's just the beautiful photos and it doesn't talk about the crisis. But this one finally does get to some of the issues around climate change, etc. So I, I, I would recommend that to people because it 
it, it's still not as harsh as some of what I see out there, but it does get to the issues. And the other thing I thought that I've been reading a lot, and it's really interesting, is the language that we use really matters. So the Guardian uh, newspaper in, in the UK, which is available online, of course, just announced that it will no longer say climate change. It will say climate emergency in everything. It will no longer say global warming. It will say global heating. And, and I was reading that and thinking, that's true. We need to look at the language we're using and say what's really going on and not try to speak, you know, in, in kinder terms so we don't upset people. Let's call it a climate emergency. Let's say global heating. It's not just warming. It's, it's heating. So I think that's something that struck me and I'm going to look out for it in my own language as well and be sure, you know, say what's really going on. We have a species extinction emergency, a biodiversity emergency, and we need to deal with it accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that too. It's really interesting. And, um, you know, we had Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on the show a few weeks ago, and he actually recommended the same Netflix series. So, um, okay. so two recommendations from two, uh, two real experts. Um, so Sue Lieberman, thank you uh, so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We really appreciate you, um, helping us understand more about biodiversity. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.